capable of connecting with ourselves. I mean, we were connected with our basic physical needs and our physiological needs and our emotional needs. And then as we grow up, we're supposed to grow into being who we are in the world as a personality, as a, as a vocation or whatever. So where did I lose the, Where did it become confusing for me? Where did I not know who I am? He's from the Netherlands. She's from Serbia. He's from the corporate. She's from the nonprofit. He was an addict and burnt out. She was caring too much and got compassion fatigue. Two different backgrounds and two different voices. Welcome to a new episode of He Said, She Said, an unfiltered and honest discussion format with diverse views with your hosts, Vesna and Andre. Join their mission to break the stigmas and start the conversation while supporting HR and bringing mental fitness to their organization. Let's get ready to develop resilience improve emotional intelligence, and build companionship within your team to reduce absence, burnout, and emotional exhaustion within your workplace. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Today, we would love to welcome our guest, Daniel Mate, and he's award-winning music theater songwriter, educator, and the world's only mentor chiropractor, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I think I'm the world's only. World's only. Well, I made it up, so I better be the world's only. Yeah, I think you are. <laughs> At his core, he's someone with a deep interest in what makes human beings thick. When he was two, he used to walk up to strangers and earnestly ask, how are you feeling? I found that very cute. Oh, this is the extended bio. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, in school, he used Metallica lyrics as poetry to express himself. He's also an acclaimed voice performer, a two-time Audi Award nominee, and a winner of the Earphones Award for his narration on Cabo's Mate in the Realms of Hungry Ghosts. And the voice of New York Times bestselling The Myth of Normal, which you can see here, Trauma, Illness and Healing in a Toxic Culture, on which he served as a co-author with his father. So, welcome to the new episode of He Said, She Said, with our guest Daniel Mate, and I'm Vesna, this is my husband Ander. Welcome. Yeah, welcome Daniel, it's, it's great to have you over here. Thank you, and thank you. Yeah, we are... Working on a new program, it's called Dare to Be Human, uh -huh. and dare Ima to be imagine human. that. Yeah, there will be uh, Utopia, <laughs> and what we dare to be, dare to be ourselves. Yeah, yeah, I think that's maybe the step before that. Yeah. So what we really try to do is to create a. We already did one cohort, and this year we're gonna launch the second one mm -hmm. to create eight week program for youth to really teach them the basic fundamentals of life. Hmm. Now, within that program, we have different dare to, we have dare to act, dare to feel, dare to connect. Hmm. And today we really want to talk with you about dare to connect hmm. because we really see some interesting things where we can talk about like dare to connect, how you connect with your dad by writing this amazing book and we are really curious about the process mm -hmm. how it is to to write with your dad how it is to write with with Gabo Mate but also um yeah more the dare to connect what you can find in the book I think more the, the internal connection but also the external connection and yeah we do a lot with companies so we also have some questions about that so I, I think I that's That's a little bit in a nutshell what we love to talk about today. Great. Let's crack the nutshell and see what's inside. Yes. I think it's a great idea. So, yeah, I, I think first of all, like there, we see it's like award-winning music theater songwriter. Yeah. Um, but also mental chiropractor. Why did you choose to, to go into the field of music? Well... I chose to go into the field of music because if I didn't, I would have wasted my life. And what I mean by that is it's what I, it's one of the things I was supposed to do. And I was running away from it in my twenties. I've always been musical. I was born to, to love music and to make music. I have perfect pitch. When I was three or four years old, my parents noticed that I would stand at the piano playing along to the Beatles, just uh. harmonizing. Like I knew which notes to play. And, um, you know, I was a piano player throughout my childhood and I loved making up little songs. You know, my classical instructors wanted me to learn to play 
Bach and okay. Mozart and Beethoven. I wanted to play Mate. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Had it also something to do with, we know your dad is quite obsessed yeah, well, by <laughs> music, buying music. Uh, I think this is a question of cause versus correlation. Um, uh, it was a complicating factor, I would say. Because when I'm playing piano in one room and he's blasting Bartok in the next room, <laughs> it's, it becomes a bit of a competition, you know, uh -huh. especially since I had a father who didn't have a healthy passion for music, as he said, but an unhealthy compulsion to purchase and then to sit alone in the living room blasting it as a way of avoiding himself and a way of, in some ways, avoiding family life where he was more comfortable as a workaholic doctor than at home. So my relationship to his relationship to music i was i had tension about it obviously internally so that my music at the piano was you know really mine but even that everything is connected mm. i mean the word can uh, let's bring the word connection up in response to every question you have so i got a little disconnected in some ways from my pure love of it my, um as a child playing music became a way of impressing people and as a replacement for just effortlessly connecting socially. Like I remember at summer camp, when other kids would just be playing and hanging out, I would go to the piano and, and, and play and improvise for an hour. And secretly what I was hoping was that, you know, someone, hopefully a girl would come over and, you know, lean on the piano and listen and be like, wow, you're amazing. Well, what is that? That's me thinking that happens. What's that? It happened? Yeah, but not the girls I wanted. Okay. okay. Uh, <laughs> but that, that, that's the story of my love life, you know? If, if, I wouldn't be a part of, I, what did Groucho Mark say? I wouldn't want to be a part of any club that would have me. You know what I'm saying? So, but, but, so even that represents a slight disconnection because the love of music should be the love of music. That's the pure love. It's just like the love of God or nature or whatever. It's its own thing. But when it becomes a means to an end, that's a sign of a wound, of a trauma, because my connection from myself has been severed so that now the thing, even the things that I love become a means to an end, a, a means of trying to fill some void inside. Now, I threw my passion into listening to music and loving music of all kinds from, you know, Metallica to Joni Mitchell to Bob Dylan to Wu-Tang Clan. I mean, everything. In my 20s, after a very unsatisfying undergraduate experience doing a psychology degree, actually, which was just a default choice. And it was a way of, in some ways, not taking the risk of pursuing theater and music, which I loved. At the end of my 20s, I realized, you know what? I only get one life and what am I avoiding and why am I avoiding it? And I had a bunch of stories in my head justifying why, oh, that's not for me. School's not for me. Oh, that's fine. I'm satisfied just doing this stuff on the margins of my life. I recorded an album of my own songs. By this point, I played guitar too at age 25 and I did nothing with it. It was, I think there's still boxes of it sitting in my parents' basement. And what's ironic about that is the centerpiece of the album was a song about declaring freedom from my parents, <laughs> you know? So just all these contradictions. And then at a but certain- still you need them for storage. For, yeah, for, absolutely. But not only that, but I'm storing them inside of here, you know, free, free storage. Uh, not free actually. Uh, um, so at age 29 or so, I realized, you know what? I had a bit of an awakening and, and from there, I, it was a quick step to apply to the NYU, New York University graduate musical theater writing program. And it was, it was a big leap for me because I wasn't so knowledgeable about musical theater per se. I loved music, I loved theater, and I just took a gamble on where those two streets intersect. Maybe I can set up a little stand and, and do something interesting. Um, so that's why music. And once I did that, I realized this is this feels good to embrace this because it's also what makes me um, unique in my family. I mean, my both my parents love music and have maybe my mom has a good musical ear, but I'm the only one who really pursued an instrument and all that. So I, I did it, I, you know, on a on a on a going out on a bit of a limb that it would be a satisfying thing for me to pursue this professionally. And also in doing that, I had to admit that I didn't know everything that I, you know, and wasn't necessarily always the smartest guy in the room, which was always one of my defenses. So going to grad school around other students who know a lot more about the history of musical theater, Rodgers and Hammerstein, Stephen Sondheim, Rent, I had never seen much of this stuff. And so I had to be a beginner. 
So that was helpful for me. And also what I didn't expect was the biggest thing I got out of it was learning how to collaborate with others. Because even if you write a musical by yourself, and there are some of my shows where I write music, lyrics, and the so-called book, which is the script, uh, others, other musicals, I collaborate with other writers. And whenever you write a musical, you're collaborating with the director, the music director, the actors and all that. So you have to learn how to play well with others and not be such a solo artist. And that for me was revolutionary. And then I brought that skill set to writing with my father, who, you know, I was able to teach a little something about that too, I think. Um, so I th- that's my answer to your question. Why, why music? Because it's a crucial expression of who I am now. It's not the only thing. And that's a good thing, too, because you can make a killing on Broadway, but you can't make a living. Mm-hmm. So and, that's why the mental chiropractor came in. Well, that I mean, that's partly why it came in. Uh, although I, I didn't it didn't start as a business idea. It just started with someone saying to me, you know, you're not like because I like to work with people. In addition to being an artist, I like having conversations that help people that clarify things for me. I like having... Um, I just read, I just did the audiobook, uh, the American version of the audiobook for my dad's first book, Scattered Minds, about attention deficit disorder. And what's interesting, I didn't think of this as an ADD trait, but he says that ADD people, and there's a lot of people in the book who testify to this, are very impatient with superficial conversations. They want to get to the heart of things with people, which, you know, that's a strength, right? But the inability to blend in socially can make cause difficulties too. But that's always been the thing for me. Just like what you read in my bio, going up to strangers and saying, how are you feeling? You know, like I want, it's not like, how's the weather? Or do you like this toy I have? It's like, tell me your deepest, darkest, your, your, your truth, you know? And, and I will even listen. And I will listen. And, but mostly I will tell you mine. Um, so that's always been my inclination. And so turning that into a strength, a conscious offering. I was working with people in a group situation once and someone said, you know, I was expecting you to be like your father, like Gabor Jr. I said, oh my God, I hope not. <laughs> he said, his wife tried to copy the real thing, you know? And um, he said, you're not like him. I said, I know, but what do I do? He said, you're a mental chiropractor. I said, oh, I like that. Because unlike a therapist who has unlimited patience to sit and listen to your 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 deepest wounds and go back to your childhood and all this i'm not patient i want to get to it right now i want to make an adjustment <laughs> let's get it if you're stuck let's get unstuck if you're looking at things in a way that is not the only way of looking at it but it's the only way you know of looking at it and it's got you suffering or struggling or just irritated i've had enough firsthand experience And this is what happened around the time that I went to, that I decided to go to grad school. After years of slow self-knowledge and therapy and all this, all of a sudden I had a sudden awakening in a particular context, in a particular personal development context. And in from one minute, I went from, oh my God, the world's against me and there's nothing for me in this in, in this place and everyone is different than, I'm different than everybody and I'm left out to, oh, I'm just in a room with a bunch of other people. And I'm perfectly free to have whatever experience I choose to have. Well, if that's possible, then I want that all the time. Like, why not have that all the time? And if I can have it more and more of the time, then I want that for other people too, because that's more interesting to me than just like, oh, you know, life is life and it is what it is. And we have to just complain and talk about sports. And I, lo- I love talking about sports, but... You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So the mental chiropractic thing, when someone gave me that name, it it fit, it connected. I was like, I recognized myself in that. And then from there, it took me a year or two to decide, oh, maybe I could create a little business out of this. And I was taking a walk with a friend one day and he said, you're very good at walking with people. I said, yeah, you know what? When I walk, I have better thoughts, clearer thinking, more outside the box Uh, contemplation and that's how I created my mental chiropractic service take a walk with Daniel so I go for actual walks with people usually by phone these days or zoom because they're all over the world but if they're in the same place with me we meet up and we have a conversation one conversation that's designed to get one thing unstuck not I'll see you next week no I don't want to see you next week (laughs) if I do my job the stiffness Um, That's right. Now go out and live. Now go out and live. Go get some bigger, better problems, mm-hmm. and then come back to me, and we'll and we'll so get that. Again, certain yeah pain stiffness. We can 
going to next. That's right. But hopefully what you get out of our conversation is a new possible point of view so that when you get stiff the next time with that thing, and again, it's not the body, it's the mind, although the two are connected, obviously, uh, you'll know what to do for yourself, you know, which maybe isn't the best business model, but it means I get to see new people all the time <laughs> and, and I never get bored. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It really resonates with, I think, how I prefer to work with people. Yes, it's... when you share that, I exactly thought about Andre <laughs> because he's also that type of person. He's like, why do we need to talk so much about this? Let's just fix it in one chat, you know, and it's done. Yeah, well, but that's the thing. I think both you guys make a, a good embodied example of how the two approaches really work together. I, I have a therapist and I need that for myself because there are some things that can't be unlocked by the mind immediately. But I think in the therapy, new age, spiritual healing and even psychological world, we underestimate how much can Yeah. And I think that's that impatience in you is a very positive thing if it's balanced by the patience of saying, you know what, there are some things that need time because especially the deepest beliefs, the core wounds, the stuff the nervous system carries, you can't just make a decision to change that part of your mind because that part of your mind is not under the control of the the frontal cortex, right? It's it it's buried in the deeper systems of, you know, the limbic system and the amygdala or whatever you know the but you mm. can make the decision to start the change yes you can you can make the decision that i'm going to you can make the choice really to say okay whatever i'm struggling with maybe this isn't the only way of seeing it and if you open up that tiny crack you know my fellow canadian leonard cohen has this great lyric which has become almost a cliche but because people quote it all the time but i think it's it you can never hear it enough Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. It's how the light gets in. That's how it works here. It is how it works. But you have to first will, be willing to accept that. And my only requirement when people come see me before we start walking is that they accept the possibility that the reason they're stuck is not the external circumstances. It's their point of view. That's the crack. Because if you come into me being like, oh, I have this impossible situation. Can you help me solve it? Like, what should I do? I don't care what you do. Anything you do using the same mindset that you're currently in is going to yield more of the same. There's no crack in that. That's an airtight um, mental framework that says I have to survive and cope and problem solve and like life hack. You know, don't life hack. Hack your own Crack your own code, you know, mm -hmm. escape out of your own matrix. So that's my only requirement, that people be willing to just, you know, open themselves to the possibility that maybe even inside of the circumstances not changing, if I had a different outlook, and you don't have to know what it is. You just have to be curious for an hour and 15 minutes and then let me get in there and do my thing. And then at the end, you get to choose. You can go back to looking at it the old way. It's up to you, but at least you'll have a genuine choice. I found it very interesting what you said, because I have a feeling like it often goes the other way around. You said you were studying psychology, yeah. and then at one moment you realized that you should actually go more in art, like music. Well, I wish it was one moment. I was studying psychology, I had a nervous breakdown, uh -huh. and then eight years later I realized I should go eight into art. Eight years? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so that then it was quite a long journey. <laughs> yeah. And actually, why I'm mentioning that now, because I'm, I have this book in front of me, like The Artist's Way, where she, oh, yeah, she yeah. actually talks how often people who go in helping professions yeah. are actually sometimes, especially women, are actually suppressed artists, you know, that, you know, go more, let's help because that's, you know, the role of a woman. I met Julia Cameron once. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love her book. I think someone wanted me to write possibly a musical about her, but it never... Oh, that, that would be cool. It would be super yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. So I actually bought that book because I think I had the same issue because my mom is pedagogist, like educator, mm -hmm. and I went exactly the same road. Yeah. And now I'm doing what I'm doing now for ages. But sometimes I do feel that voice inside of me, like, maybe I should have just been a writer, you know, like, because I would like to be a science fiction writer. So not just like a personal development psychology books. Well, let me ask you something. If you, if you change the tense, the verb tense of that sentence, maybe I should have been you know, yes. past conditional. Yes. Please, walk with her. I don't have to. I'll sit with her. Is there any reason you can't start writing a short, uh, a science fiction story tomorrow? 
I don't know. I feel like, oh, can I live from that? You know, no, 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 never mind. No, no, no. Didn't say anything about can you live from it. You said I want to be a writer. You know what a writer does? Right. They write. Yeah. They don't. Yeah. They don't necessarily make a lit. Now, if you want to be a professional writer, that's a different thing. But you have to be a writer first. Yeah. And saying, oh well, I'll never be a professional writer is one way of never writing. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly, he gave exactly the same advice. He said, let's start every day by just writing a short story, you know, and let's yeah. see where this goes. Oh, but I'm not even going to give you that advice because I'm not convinced that you really want to. So you have to, well, you, you have to answer that question for yourself. I mean, I think deep down you do. Yeah, but deep down, that's if, yes. But if you say yes. it's my intention to live, not even to be a science fiction writer, but if it's my intention to live a self-expressed life, for instance, or if it's my intention to put imagination and 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 because if you're interested in science fiction what is it about science fiction that you love oh i have a really crazy imagination yeah and i have really crazy dreams that are literally like every night every night i have literally like a movie story in my mind every morning coffee i have a new story that's awesome yes that's, what a contribution day. yeah yes. and what's it like for you to hear it yeah, it's, it's every time that I say, if you maybe write it down and then read it for me, that means on the end of the year, you can publish your 360 days. Sure. Short yeah. Well, and that gives you a chance to make sense of it. Because when we wake up out of a dream, it's like, well, what the hell was that? Right. Mm -hmm. But you, I think you have an innate sense, even if you haven't put language to it, mm. that there's some value in that because the world needs more imagination. Yes. Yes. And the science fiction genre is, is about imagining possible worlds or it's about imagining what's going to happen to this world if we don't change anything. Exactly. You know, like Isaac Asimov or, or any of these, you know, like science fiction, it's either Star Wars or it's Star Trek, which is like the idyllic, um, you know, so whatever. Mm -hmm. Both of those are contributions or it's just something else. It's just your thing. So if some part of you says, I want more of that in the world and I want to participate in more of that being in the world, then you could say, okay, well, what's it costing me not to do that? And what, what would, what's, what's one way I could be aligned with that? And one way might be to start writing down your dreams. One way might be to, to write one page every day, 10 minutes every day. I don't know. I'm not going to give you advice. The question mm -hmm. is, is that aligned for me? And then is alignment important to me? Yes, I think that's... So you're welcome. I'll see you guys later. Yes, nice thank you. Thank you for so, the advice. So, was uh, our... <laughs> no, that was really helpful. And actually, the book made me even more think about it when yeah. I read it. But the question, like, why I ask you this? Can I kind of mention my story? Because I know where this, like, suppression, of the repression of this urge comes from. Mm -hmm. And I know it has to do with me growing up in certain traumas, developmental traumas, and later some other ones family dynamics and so on. And I think we're kind of all familiar with Gabler's Mate trauma and his story and yes. his growing up and why he's doing what he's doing. Future generations are going to read Gabor Mate's trauma to their children as a bedtime story. <laughs> it's a foundational text of Western civilization. Yes, yes. But I'm, I'm curious about your story and maybe your healing journey because yeah. you said there was that eight years of studying psychology and you realized okay well maybe this is actually not for me yeah this is not something that i want to do so i'm curious how did maybe your dad even contribute in that or yeah. it was separate from it yeah was it some journey that you took on your own oh i had to take it on my own at that point my father couldn't help me you know um you know, so anything I'm going to say about my upbringing, in no way am I blaming my parents or making excuses. I'm trying to understand where did, where in my, just like anyone who reads this book is going to be invited to look at where did I lose the thread of myself? Where did I get disconnected? Because we were born connected to ourselves, or at least capable of connecting with ourselves. I mean, we were connected with our basic physical needs and our physiological needs and our emotional needs. And then as we grow up, we're supposed to grow into being who we are in the world as a personality, as a, as a vocation or whatever. So where did I lose the, Where did it become confusing for me? Where did I not know who I am? I mean, you've never met a cat who doesn't know who they are. You know, the cat is perfectly, unless you, you know, there are animals who are traumatized. True. You know, so I think I've already alluded to it in terms of my talent becoming something I didn't quite trust because I had to use it to feel safe, to get attention, 
to make my parents proud of me or pleased with me. Now, it's not to say that they weren't pleased with me or they weren't proud of me, but as we say in the book, trauma is not facts. Trauma is an experience. It's a, it, it hap- and it happens based on perception. So if I think there's an earthquake happening, even though it's just a power drill next door, it doesn't matter if, I, if it's not an earthquake, I'm going to act as if it is. So we make conclusions based on our perceptions. And as children, we make everything about us. We're learning about the world. So I had two parents who, for whatever reason, were carrying their own traumas and and they had a very intense relationship that was very informed by their traumas, meaning they were distracted and pulled away energetically from being able to fully embrace who I was. And I presented special challenges as well. I was a pretty gifted kid, pretty intense kid pretty demanding kid and they were young and they, you know, they had a lot going on externally and internally to them. So learning that my talent isn't fully mine in a way, like getting, like make operationalizing it, turning it into a means to an end. Like some people learn to turn their attractiveness into a means to an end. Well, attractiveness in its purest form is just magnetism, charisma, presence, right? People want to be around you, you, you know, but if you learn that, oh, when I'm pretty or I'm cute or I'm athletic, I get, I get more of the love that I un, non-negotiably need to survive, but is sort of in short supply when I'm just ordinary. Well, then all of a sudden that becomes a survival strategy. And when something's a survival strategy, it's compulsive. We can't get enough of it, meaning that it's never satisfying, meaning that we don't fully trust it. And some people will dive into it as a career and some people will avoid it. Um, there's also, you know, we want to be seen, but also if we are seen, then maybe my worst fears about myself will be confirmed that there's something wrong with me. So it's like, look at me, don't look at me, come here, go away. Um, so I think that's one way of, of framing where I got alienated from this thing that was so close to me, so vulnerable. Um, I think also, yeah, the experience of growing up in a home where music was an addiction, really, and in some ways something I was afraid of because of the loud, dramatic, crashing music, you know. Um, and it became also a form of resistance. And But I didn't, you know, because he'd blast Mahler above my bedroom and I would blast Megadeth. Uh, but if it's resistance, then it's not exactly self-expression, is it? Mm. You know, so all of these things, these, these sort of distortions of our natural abilities and gifts and inborn temperaments become things that we either are compulsive about or we're avoidant of or, or a mix of both. So it took me then after this sort of breakdown at the end of my undergrad all of my 20s sort of marginalizing those gifts and those passions to the outside of my life while I worked odd jobs like selling Persian carpets, you know, delivering a, a big, beautiful Indo-Persian rug to Sarah McLaughlin's house in Vancouver. You know, like, that's an interesting job, sort of. It's got nothing to do with what I'm hearing. But, you know, I was, con- I was talking to people in the, in the shop and whatever. It was like, like a very indirect, oblique angle on on what I love. Um, and basically being, you develop a hunger for something by being starved of it. You know, you, 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 and, and, and then if you get a taste of it, you want more of it. So by, by the time I was, and, and, and not just that, but the consequences of that alienation were depression and anxiety and, and, and suffering really. So after enough suffering, you can either get used to it or there's always a force in us, the authentic force that wants to rise up and, and say, no, that's what I'm here for is to become myself, not to avoid myself. And I was lucky that I had an opportunity to have my mind, you know, to have my brain washed basically in a good way, a little scrub. And then to have a mother who had a conversation with me that she'd tried to have for years, which is to say, Daniel, I, why aren't you pursuing your talents? But I always took that as a criticism or an attack. Leave me alone, mom. That's your, you know, stop trying to change me. But then after this experience, having a sort of a fresh mind, 
I was like, oh, you're just my biggest fan and you're making <laughs> yeah. total sense. Yeah. And so I was, you know, that. But of course, that wasn't the last time that I got, I got cobwebs in the brain. And, all, you know, all, it, it, it's a constant process of finding and losing and seeking and, and stumbling upon things. And anyway, that was a long answer to a question. I don't even remember what it was, but, <laughs> but I hope I answered it. Yes, yes, you did. Because I actually referred it also to, I think that there was a quote um, in the book that you said that there was a lack, there was a lack of that feeling of safety. Oh, yeah. Growing up, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. And the floor yeah, wasn't the, the floor. floor. I really yeah. like that. And that was a, a, an image from my recurring dreams. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Where yes. the floor would literally yeah. keep opening up. And what was interesting was that in those dreams, often it was the back seat of my father's car. I remember that it was a white Toyota Tercel, standard transmission with, <laughs> with brown leather-ish seats. And in the dream, when things got too scary in that car, I would try to rip open the fabric of reality and fall through to another one, except... The next reality was just as bad. And then I would try to rip open the floor again. And eventually I'd wake up in my actual bed. So sometimes the floor would swallow me up. Sometimes I would try to escape through it into the next reality. I didn't say that. So that feeling, yeah, it, because I had a loving family. It's, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a constant living hell, but it could turn into one at any moment because my parents could not regulate their own moods and they could not put the needs of their children before their own I could say childish, and I don't mean that as a judgment. I just mean literally stuck in the, in the state of childhood, non-self-regulation. They could regulate each other, and then sometimes we had to regulate them in the way that so many children have to roll reverse and make their parents feel better. But they couldn't regulate themselves the way parents need to if they're going to provide a stable, secure environment. Yeah, I think many people can relate to that. Really. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm also curious now that you mentioned that because, for example, Andre, I think, really experienced how it is to be in a relationship with someone who is going through compassion fatigue because during COVID I worked a lot and I think he was literally constantly like walking on eggshells, like, oh, not to, you know, stress you out more because you're already so stressed with, you know, saving the world. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious, like, how it is to grow up with with a parent, with a father who is helping so many people, oh, yeah. you know, and healing so many people and that job I can't even imagine. You sure. Know? How was that for you? Yeah, it's a good question. Let me just ask you, how long had you been together before COVID started? Uh, not long. <laughs> not maybe long. a year. Yeah. A year and a half or something like that. Okay. Maybe two years. Because yeah. I wonder if there was a dynamic where... Because often in relationships, women have to be the emotional caregiver to the man. So maybe your compassion fatigue might not just have been in the professional world, but COVID gave you a chance to actually say, you know what, dude, take care of yourself. Yes. <laughs> you know how we men often want to be mothered? I'm just I'm just speculating. I don't know. Maybe that was a dynamic. There was quite also that a little bit and also the other way around. Yeah. yeah. We had quite some, uh, because I think we both had quite issues that yeah. we kind of projected on each exactly. other throughout our relationship. Yeah, uh -huh. so COVID was challenging, but there's also opportunities in it. Yes. We, we yeah, had, I yeah. think it was like, okay, so you are stuck in this cubicle yeah. and just fix it. You got to deal with yourself. Yes. So yes. I think in the beginning it was pretty confrontating, but also I think the fear because I moved to Serbia, but then I think even the fear also by Vesna, what's gonna happen? Is he still allowed to stay? Uh, of we course. were not married yet, so we married on Zoom quickly right. to also have that right. certain security. So it's it's yeah, and I think for me like the the part of compassion fatigue, she was doing so much good, and then it's really difficult to say something bad to a person who is doing so much good. Absolutely. Well. So that relates to my question. That relates to my, because first of all, why is it something bad to say, hey, I need you, or I'm feeling sad, or I'm feeling vulnerable? That's not bad. The no, only, the yeah. only, the only, but hold on, your your language is revealed. Sorry, I'm, I'm seem to be in mental chiropractor mode. You ask me questions, <laughs> really and I, and I, they, but I mean, it's such an, I'm sitting here with a couple. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the fact that you say to say something bad. Where did you learn that? I don't need to ask. My father would sit here and say, what would happen in your childhood? I know. <laughs> you learned that to, to express your own needs was going to put stress on 
a parental figure, or at least many of us learn that. I won't make that mm. assumption about you, but that's just one possible way we learn that. And so then now we're on already on eggshells when it comes to to saying, you know, to admitting that we we need something. And then we we find ourselves in relationships with people who bring this up again, which is an opportunity for healing. Anyway, I will now shift the focus back to your question <laughs> so as to, to not make you more uncomfortable. Um, oh no, it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Am I onto something at all? No, yeah, yeah. I, I think for sure, I think, but that's that's maybe we can dive into yeah, yeah, fair enough. Question, I think it's 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 related to certain things. Sure, absolutely. So to answer your question, um, well, in my the question is why did he have compassion fatigue? There are people who have compassion fatigue because they're working, like if you were a frontline nurse during COVID, or a, or mental health professional during COVID. The world need like your job description was to it was just too much for anybody. My dad was a doctor, which is already taxing, but he was also a workaholic doctor. So his compassion that's like saying that a cocaine addict has excitement fatigue or a heroin addict has relax relaxation fatigue <laughs> or a sex addict has sex fatigue. Sort of, but it's not the sex and it's not the excitement and it's not the compassion. It's the context in which it's happening, what's driving you to do it. And unlike in the case of COVID, my dad didn't need to be accepting every single, um, you know, obstetric assignment he had. He didn't need to be on call every single weekend. He didn't need to be the hero, at least by the world standards. But internally, as he said, if you feel unloved and unworthy as a human being, become a doctor because then you'll be at least needed. And so that's what was driving him. So he couldn't stop, which meant he was already fatigued hmm. before he came in and he was already cut off from his compassion for himself. So he could generate the feeling of compassion and express it in his actions. And being a doctor truly is his calling or it's part of his calling. And thank God he went into it. It's been a benefit to millions of people at, at this point, including, you know, in Serbia of all places. That's how cool is that? That said, as the frontline recipient of his compassion fatigue as, a, fatigue as a child, ideally you would want to become a doctor who can go out and perform that in the world, but isn't so, is not just fatigued, but compassion starved internally compassion starved, needing it from the outside because whatever you need from the outside doesn't last and then you can't give it to people by choice. And ideally, you'd want a parent who can say, you know what, who is my compassion primarily for? It's for the people that I love and who depend on me. And he didn't have that capacity because it was a non-sustainable, non-renewable source of energy that he always had to get from outside the house because in our house, you know, Unlike a patient who, once you give them the compassion, they go away and you get the next one. I'm his son. I'm there every single day. And I look like him and I remind him of himself. And he has this responsibility and he's in a marriage with someone who he also has genuine obligation to for the rest of his life. Well, that's... And how, how was that for you? Did you create a certain hacks to maybe get certain compassion? The, the last yeah. leftovers? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I created a bunch of hacks. And again, I didn't do them on purpose. That my nervous, we're, we're endlessly inventive when it comes to survival strategies, you know, whatever it takes, because we have to get through childhood one way or another. Um, and um, so being talented and special was one way. Hey, dad, look at what I, look at what I can play. You like Bach, right? You know, um, because just being me wasn't enough. I think I created another hack of mine. Not all kids go this route, but I became combative and competitive, like trying to be more clever than my parents. Trying so this is that when when I couldn't impress them or 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 seduce them into loving me, I could fight back when they were unfair, and I would write long, angry dissertations and slip them under their door to protest my case and, and being. So self-expression also became a form of, like I said, resistance and rebellion. There's a, a drawing that I drew when I was four years old or six years old or something when I was super into dinosaurs. My parents kept it, you know. Some, some, some parents keep their children's, you know, 
princess art or like science fiction art. My parents kept my trauma art. So there's a, there's a, there's a drawing of three dinosaurs, two big dinosaurs, a, a male and a female, and one little dinosaur. And the, the two dinosaurs are roaring angrily, showing their teeth. And the little dinosaur is crying. And the caption written in my pretty good handwriting for a six-year-old says, is this the proper way to treat a child? <laughs> Well, on the one hand, ah, oh, isn't that cute? Amazing. He isn't he talented? What a genius. On the other hand, that's what it took for me to express myself. It's a cry for fucking help. You know what I'm saying? Literally. Right. Yeah. So then again, my talent becomes a survival strategy, which means it's exhausting to all because we can't be in survival mode all the time. It's too much of an, an allostatic load, as the researcher Bruce McEwen coined the term, on our nervous systems, the, stre the, the stress of chronic stress. Stress is meant to be acute. Anger is meant to be acute. It rises, it, 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 it diminishes, and then we're left at equilibrium. But there was no equilibrium. A little bit uh, the same, the, the Metallica Absolutely. poem. <laughs> yeah, 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 which I can, I can share about uh, if you like, but because um, that was from our Hello Again workshop. So yeah, exactly, right. So, so then one of my hacks was to listen to angry me. Once I... See, throughout, it's interesting, throughout my childhood until my adolescence, I was Mr. Peacenik. I was, I would, you know, a friend of mine always loved, in high school would tell me this embarrassing story that he never forgot from when I was in fourth grade, which I wanted to forget. But we were in the library and my friends were looking at an encyclopedia from like of World War II insignias and planes and weapons and stuff. Isn't this cool, Daniel? Don't you love this symbol of this? you know, this eagle or whatever. I don't know, maybe it was even a Nazi symbol or something, or it could have been a U.S. plane, doesn't matter. Isn't that cool? And I said, apparently I said, Ross, my friend Ross actually just passed away this year. Um, so I said, Ross, the only symbol that looks good to me is that of the dove in flight. What a little nerd, you know? So that was my another way of hacking, by being different and being like morally superior. But then... At age 11 or 12, it was like, if you can't beat him, join him. And the anger, the rage in me that I had stuffed down because I was terrified of my father's rage, because another thing that would happen, not just his sullen withdrawal, but exploding without a moment's notice, mostly verbally, once he hit me across the face, which is a story he tells on many podcasts. Um, but that fear and the, the anger of that, the how dare you of that, the boundary uh The, the violation of that, there's anger, but we have to suppress it because it, it's too, if I, if I show I'm angry, I, I might get killed. You know, at least that's what the little child thinks. Because think of how big this, how much bigger a parent is. Like, it's terrifying. It's like you're an ant and they're a, a cat just playing with you, you know? Um, so I had suppressed it for so long that all of a sudden, part of me was just snapped and I was like, fuck it. All right, if you can't beat him, join him. And the next year I dressed up as Freddy Krueger for Halloween. And I became obsessed with gory movies, got into Metallica and Slayer and Megadeth and these bands that were expressing aggression, but also pain through heavy music. And um, so that was another hack. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd say that the final hack was if, if all of that doesn't work, collapse, which is to say get sick, get depressed, be the patient, be the patient. Mm. Oh my God. That's really important. Actually, very good point. Mm. You like being a doctor, dad? I will be your patient. I'm sick. Yeah. And the nervous system understands that. So I think that in some ways my depressions were a way of, and my, my collapses and my, you know, nosebleeds and my crying and, and my fragility, partly it was because of my sensitivity, but partly I knew that sympathy Even if compassion wasn't there, sympathy mm -hmm. was. And there's a difference between sympathy and compassion, which is, again, with my mental chiropractic, I'm always making these fine-grained distinctions between things that seem like synonyms, but in fact, they're not. Do you, what do you think the, the difference, I'll put it to you, this, the difference is between compassion and sympathy. We talk about it in the book. Maybe you've, got, you've seen that. sympathy is a little bit more like I'm superior in a way, yeah. and in my intellectual bubble of your pain. Yes. But compassion is more seeing each other's equals. Well, I don't know about equals necessarily, but... But certainly as fellow human beings, yeah. compassion, literally the root of it is to feel with. Mm. 
right? As opposed to to feel for, oh, I feel for you. Aren't you suffering? It also means buying into your story. Mm. So if my story is I'm fragile, I'm weak, I need help, I can't do it alone. Then if my father buys into that and loves me through that story, then he's reinforcing that I need him, that I'm weak, that I can't do it alone. If there's compassion, it has a broader view and it'll say, oh, wow, you think you're not good enough on your own. You think you're weak. I wonder why. Compassion has curiosity to it. Compassion wants to understand the context, not just treat the symptoms. So sympathy and pity are a, a poor facsimile, really, of compassion, but they're easier to elicit in people because... Compassion is from the heart and, and, and sympathy is more sentimental. It's from the ego, it's from the personality, and it, it doesn't require that we really, really see people, which means to see ourselves. Okay, no, I think this is an amazing bridge towards the next thing that we want to talk about. Mm. I think when the compassion started with your dad, when he asked you for help to be together to write a book, Yeah, well, he he really wanted to have you together writing sure. a book instead of like the other books that it was more helping. Um, so how 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 did it feel for you? I felt great. It felt great. I can't say that's the first time he showed me compassion, but it was certainly was a bridge um, to a new era in our dynamic. I mean, I had to have compassion for him too. <laughs> wow, you really want to make a contribution to the world. This book is in you. You've been trying to write it for six years and failing. He had to send back his yeah, six-figure advance to the Canadian publishers. He's like, I can't do this. And yet it's the most important thing he ever had to say. It encompasses all of his work. It's about the world. It was going to be, it was a big risk, you know? Mm -hmm. And well, I know about that. I'm a creative artist. I doubt myself all the time. I, ha I have ideas that are somewhere in me that I have no, I have to take a leap of faith to get them out of me, you know? So I can appreciate that. And he's asking for my help and he's admitting his limitations and he's seeing in me the strengths and he thinks he can work with me too. He doesn't think I'm going to drive him crazy. Yeah, that was a big deal. Um, I also had to deal with my own, oh, I'm just riding my dad's coattails. This is nepotistic. I'm only getting this job because it's him. Yeah, what I didn't see in those moments is that's true, but I'm only getting this job because it's me mm -hmm. as well, because no one else in the world could have written this book with him. No one. I'm clear on that, you know, in terms of understanding his voice as well as I do, and in terms of being inside of these these teachings and these these insights and having my own things to contribute and also just being a really good writer, you know and knowing how to improve or enhance his voice um, and contribute my own without having to dominate. So learning to do that with him and having the collaborative skills that I learned in musical theater. So bringing all of that, I had to have compassion for him and I got to see him as much more vulnerable than I ever had because he used to be completely invulnerable to me. I couldn't, I couldn't find the humanity in this humanitarian. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you know and and writing the book with him i had to have compassion for both of us because at the same time i had to say wow okay what he just said to me in that tone of voice really pisses me off that really hurts that really reminds me of my childhood so compassion for me at the same time his blood pressure is, is going up right now he's writing this book he really wants to do a good job he's nervous he's insecure wow my dad's insecure that's cool Yeah, how how was it to to sync those two voices? Mm. Do, do you really and not to sink into them? Yes, <laughs> yeah. Like like when when you read it, do you hear two different voices, or did it became one voice? Uh, I'm not the best judge of that. I mean, of course, <laughs> both because I was part of the writing process, and also because. I like patting myself on the back for, like, I know what sentences I wrote that I'm most proud of. Which one is the way you're the most proud of? Oh, there's so many. I, I wrote the first sentence of the book in the most health-obsessed human society of all time, All Is Not Well. All the sort of the, the clever turns of phrase, you know? Mm -hmm. But it uh, sounds like from a 
theater sentence. I don't That's know right. Why. Well, you because yeah. you want it to be punchy. Yes. And in yes. theater, you only have one shot. The audience is not listening to it. They can't rewind. Uh -huh. You want the lyrics to pop mm -hmm. and you want it to rhyme or to sound good, to feel good. Or like in in hip hop, you want to have flow, you know, lyrics. It's got to make it's got to be its own reward, not just the message, but the delivery system mm -hmm. has to, you know, it's like a really it's a pill that has good medicine but also tastes good going down. So Yeah, there's there's a lot of sentences like that. Um, so was it also more your dad was the message and you the delivery system? Well, we blended the delivery system. And I think he learned from how I write. And I learned from from his his views. And I learned... So again... Because you had quite some practice rounds. I think you did two books, three books? Yeah. No, that's, this is our first. No, but I mean more oh. where you were uh, supporting your dad. I had edited in the realm of Hungry Ghost. That's it. Mm -hmm. okay. And I had narrated the audiobook. So I know this voice. I know how he speaks. But I also knew I wanted to make it more contemporary because he speaks like a, you know, he writes like a 70, at the time, 75-year-old doctor. doctor who was born in Eastern Europe in 1944 <laughs> yeah. and read a lot of Charles Dickens growing up, you know. Uh, and... Uh, So, uh, yeah, I wanted to have a bit more of a contemporary flavor. So any of the song or pop culture references that are more recent than Jerry Lee Lewis, Great Balls of Fire, or Elvis Presley mm -hmm. is me. Mm -hmm. um, I think there is Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga. Yeah, I thought about government. And, 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 and Vogue, yeah. uh, Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. There used to be a Metallica reference, a Wu-Tang Clan reference, which got cut. Um, uh, because, you know, cash rules everything around me. It's our capitalist system. But in any case... But the best compliment I've gotten about the writing of the book is was from an interviewer who said, when I read this book, it felt like a single unitary voice, but it also felt like a relational voice. Mm -hmm. Like it was this well-rounded voice that had these, these two different components to it. And I couldn't ask for a better acknowledgement of what we were trying to do. And mm -hmm. if we did that, then I'm very happy. Was there any particular parts of the book that were challenging for you to write together that you said like, oh, I just totally disagree with this or this should be mm. going this way? Well, I, I guess I'll answer that question in two ways. The tr most challenging parts for me to contribute to and to write were the scientific parts. Mm -hmm. Because th that stuff can get, get a little pedantic to me sometimes. And, and <laughs> let me tell you what, the first draft of the book, that's 500 pages. First draft was twice that. Oh my God. <laughs> and it was all science. Mm -hmm. And this expert says this, and this expert says that, and other people's quotes, you know? And that got tiring because it, it had the energy of trying too hard. I'm going to prove it. You don't believe me? Oh, well, so-and-so yeah. says this, you know? Mm -hmm. And also just, and then some of the science stuff is technical, like talking about telomeres and epigenetics. It's, it's interesting, but that's not my area of interest. Um, so that was challenging in the, that was like a technical challenge. How do we spice this up, make it clear, make it concise, say only what we need to say and prove the points. I think where it was, where there was productive tension and he was extremely open to my contributions in this respect. By the time we got to the healing section, we had been, I mean, the most challenging times were when we first started, when we first started writing it, the first few chapters, um, because he would write his version of it. And then he would send it to me and I would, re I would rework it. And there were times when I would get a phone call from him, like 10 minutes after sending it to him, because he'd obviously be watching his email once it coming. <laughs> What did I think? And I sent it to him and he, he calls me back. He's like, can you zoom? He sends me the zoom invite. I said, what's up, dad? He's like, and he's like leaning into the, the it's like, uh, well, Daniel, uh, well, you're a very fine writer. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, 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 it's good prose, but uh, sounds nothing like me and it's not what I'm I, I, I'm not saying that those aren't me. I'm like dad how about you sleep on it <laughs> and of course the next morning I get an email from him saying Daniel this is great I you know so you know getting him a little unsubscribed from his own attachment to his you know is also that's the I can relate again I'm always the insecure neurotic collaborator when I write musicals the other person has to be like chill It's going to be okay because my voice can survive someone else's voice. So that negotiating just the terms of our working relationship and also making certain ground rules. Like he, like dad, you don't get to say, well, your mother agrees with me. It's like, well, I'm not collaborating with her, <laughs> you know, like, because again, that's just a repeat of my childhood, mm -hmm. two against one. 
So, yeah. so there were some. There was a game plan, some oh, decision making. Well, because if you're ever gonna, it, it's not so much what it's how you do it, and you have to create the structures and the architecture to succeed and to do it in a healthy way. So writing the book was like scaffolding for creating boundaries that we'd never been able to create in real life. Mm. And then those are able to translate into real life. So it's a very, you know, I don't recommend to everyone in the world that they write a book with their father about trauma, illness, and healing. But in my case, it was just the thing. What, what did you kept from it? What's that? What, what did you kept from like um, the certain boundaries that you created or maybe certain respect, like after writing the book that now really... Well, that it's it's just that, that or the whole relationship. The whole relationship changed. changed. It really did because it, uh, finally I didn't have to work at my father seeing me as as valid or or unique or or like I don't have to be special. I'm just me, and that's a contribution to him. Mm. And, and it became a cat. That's right, and exactly. <laughs> or or they or they both became hamsters. You know, like they 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 they, they got balanced. Or it's okay to to be different sizes. I'm never going to be as world famous as him. I don't think, or at least not for being a healer. You know, I don't think as many people will ever tell me, "Oh, you saved my life," or "You I healed from it." It's fine. That's not my karma. That's not what I'm here for. Um, and what I'm taking from it is that I don't have to resist who he is either. He's not a he's not a threat to me. He's not my enemy. I might get on my nerves. I might have opinions about him, but that's fine. I'm just a son. He's just a father. That's how it is for everybody. It's not a big deal. The other thing that was a productive challenge, and again by this point we were late in the writing process, so he was much more amenable. But I had to step up and say, you know what? I have something to contribute, especially to the the chapters on the social political stuff. Mm. So the, the politics chapter, we both wrote, but I wrote the first pass of it, you know, and the stuff on popular culture. I had a lot to say about that. And then especially the healing section. And this surprised me that I had so much to say about it. So one of my main intentions, missions, I would say, that I took on for myself in helping him write this book was, I want this book to be accessible to everybody, not just people who are already in the choir, already on the trauma train, the Gabormatic cult, which is not to say it was an actual cult, but he had a cult following of very devoted people. And most of those people had been through something intense, like many of them were capital T traumatized, addictions, mental illness, autoimmune disease, cancer, people who really needed Gabormate and found him because they needed him, which made sense because all of his four previous books at least three of them were about more niche topics mm. that not everybody deals with directly, although more and more people are dealing with them ambiently. But to me, it was very important that your average NPR listener or Joe Rogan listener or, or, or New Yorker reader could see an advertisement for this book, pick it up, think, oh, that's an interesting title, read it and immediately find it relevant, but also persuasive. Now, if we made it a new age spiritual, like, you know, just taking certain things for granted and speaking language that's alienating or, or foreign to people, it would give them a reason to dismiss it, especially like the scientifically minded academic people who might say, ah, this is, you know, this mind body stuff is a little frou-frou. I wanted to demystify things. And what was great is he really welcomed that because he wanted that too. But he was, he's more used to speaking to rooms of people who are already hungry for that. I wanted to 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 help the book be for people who need it, but they don't know they need it. Yes, I think so, that's really what you made it with this book. Yeah, I mean, we read the other ones as well. Like I read, of course, when the body says no. He read, of course, in the realm of how it goes because <laughs> we are literally the target groups for those books. Yes, but I think this book is really for everyone. Yeah, I really hope yeah. so. And that 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 starts with defining your terms very clearly. Here's what we're saying. Here's what we're not saying. We're not saying this is the only approach. So, for instance, when it comes to defining authenticity, you know, many people, including me, kind of roll their eyes at that term. You know, maybe not people on the, the spiritual path. But if you're on Instagram at all, you know that authenticity is a buzzword yeah. now. Boundaries are a buzzword. Mm. You know, uh, wholeness and healing have become products and brands so if we want these words to mean something to people to be powerful we have to get really clear on what it is and what it's not um and it was also important to me to get in the message that 
don't turn healing and therapy and trauma into a new identity yes. or being a survivor. Now I'm a traumatized person who survived trauma. Well, yeah, you survived trauma, but you're su <laughs> that's part of the problem. You know what I'm saying? Not that it, it's not a problem that you survive, but survival strategies create the problems we have. So that actual freedom doesn't lie in building up a new false identity. It involves unfastening those things and being open to new possibilities. So those kinds of slight chiropractic adjustments to the message mm. were very important to me. And again, he was so welcoming of that because that was his biggest anxiety and what kept him from writing the book, part of what kept him from writing the book for so long. I don't know if I have anything to say that people are going to want to hear or that people will understand. You know, I don't always know how to translate what I've learned to, I'm not sure that I can. And I said, yes, you can, or we can together. Hmm. Yeah, I really like what you said right now, because that's really what we are been discussing in the last years, because we also like had this long recovery healing journeys. And at one moment, it's we felt like we're not a well-being project, you know? Fuck yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'm so done with like, I said to him, I just, I don't want to go to any more therapies or healings. You know, I just want to live. Yeah. You know, and I just want to enjoy like simple stuff. Like, I don't know, there's Christmas market. I want to go eat a donut, you know, you know, and not think whether, oh my God, is that like, yeah, connected with my need for, I don't know, comfort food or like whatever, like just eat a donut. Just like donuts. You know? <laughs> yeah. I, I that is, that is not sexy. Yeah. You know, like yeah. that's, that's not, a, that's, and because if you think about it, I'm working on myself. That very statement, well, so what is trauma? Trauma is a fracturing of the self. It's a separation from ourselves. Well, I've been working on the railroad. <laughs> the railroad is over there and I'm over here and I'm working on it. I'm working on myself. I'm here, myself is here and I'm tinkering and working, working, working. As opposed to, I'm getting to know myself. I'm reconnecting with myself. I'm losing my identity in, I'm dissolving. I'm, a, I'm not a problem solver, I'm a problem dissolver. That's part of my mental chiropractic, one of my little mottos, you know? And we dissolve our identities into the ocean of self. Now I'm talking spirituality, right? This is Buddhism, this is even Christianity or Judaism that we, we allow our small selves, our ideas about ourselves to be absorbed into something greater, which is the self. So turning yourself into a project Number one, it alienates you from yourself. Number two, it indicates that there's some sort of outcome or some sort of finish line. And healing is not a destination. It's a, a direction or it's the spirit. I actually like to say it's not even personal. Healing wants to happen, period. If you, if you make a cut in a tree, nature will, wants to heal. That's, what, that's the direction nature is going. Even through destruction, there's, a, there's wholeness that's going. I guess there's two opposing forces in the universe. So healing wants to, we are, we are all well-being projects in the sense that the consciousness, the universe, wants to get more conscious, wants to get more whole. We don't have to do anything. We just have to get out of the freaking way. So if you really want to live an integrated whole life, you're absolutely right that at a certain point, there's going to come a time when you say, you know what? That's enough. I'm, and it's, it's enough focusing on it in this way. What's mm. the, that's not aligned with actual wholeness or healing. Mm. I did a mental chiropractic walk with a woman in the southern United States a couple of months ago who was healed to death. She was just sick to death of healing. Healing was killing her. Literally, it was just so stressful. She had just ordered some, you know, a bunch of new yoga equipment and her therapist was assigning, read this book and do this modality and this and that. And she tracked everything, track and, uh, everything and whatever. And I said to her, wouldn't it be nice if we could bring some lightness to this? She's actually, that, no, she came up with that herself. She's like, I just want to feel light. I don't want to heal. I want to just feel, I said, well, that would be healing. And I said, all of this intense effort and treating yourself like you're broken, that's not a solution or an antidote to your trauma. That's an amplification of your trauma. That's a new echo, a new enlightened sounding echo of your trauma. That's not subversive at all. What would be subversive is you saying, ah, okay, I'm broken. Fine. Let me go for a walk. You know? yeah. Let me take my broken self for a walk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nothing needs to happen. I can't make anything happen anyway. I might as well enjoy it. Yeah. And she wrote to me a couple of weeks later and she said, haven't touched the yoga equipment, put it in the closet, haven't read a single book about healing. I've been reading fantasy novels or watching trash TV and I feel so much better about myself. Yeah. 
which isn't going to work for everybody. It's contextual. It yeah. all depends on where you're at and what your body and nervous system are telling you, which I think is what we really mean by authenticity. Yeah, and I think, I think for me also, I went quite on the spiritual journey. I think I tried everything, a lot of fasting, meditating with the monks for a couple of days. Psychedelics? Uh, psychedelics, uh, plant retreats. Yeah. Combo, I, I did it all. And to become over my addiction. <laughs> it becomes a new addiction, doesn't it? So yeah, it was really losing myself in spirituality. But I think now, after a couple of years that I can look back, I I learned a lot that I can integrate now. Absolutely. It was really being so ashamed for that old identity, willing to be that new, enlightened, perfect soul. But I think now in the middle, like, okay, but here were amazing characters here also. And now bringing it together. You know what it is? It's a ladder. It's a ladder to get from one stage, one floor to the next. Yeah. When you're when you're done with the ladder, you don't stand at the top and look down at the ladder and be like, wow, look at that ladder. Look at each rung. Wow. No, you kick the ladder away. You give it to the next person and you continue on your way. You needed that. I needed that. I, I've been through a whole lot of different modalities. You can't rush that. You gotta enjoy that part of the journey too, or at least you know submit to it. But some people get stuck in that world. I mean, there are people who are addicted to ayahuasca, not addicted to the substance, but addicted to the experience. Because we're always addicted to experience. The ladder. Hey, one more, one more. Yeah. And I think it's really like the, that's that rolling ladder, like from the shopping mall. Exactly. You it's can a, keep on stepping and then you see like, oh, I'm actually still... It's a stairmaster, it's a stairmaster, yeah. right? Or, or, or it's like, at its worst, it's like on The Simpsons, you know, the escalator to nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs>